Good. It's good to be with you all. Just come on in and and take a seat anywhere you'd like. I'm going to pray first. Let's really value our time. I think we have 45 minutes this session, 45 minutes the next session. And how do you pack many, many hours of, of passion and your thoughts and conviction into just a couple sets? So we're going to do the best we can and ask the Lord to come meet us. We're in a critical hour. We're in a really critical hour. You are in a time frame that if you don't have discernment, you are in trouble. You are in absolute trouble. Knowledge without, knowledge without, how would I say it? I'll say it this way. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up, but you need understanding, right? So many of you in this room have been called to preach the gospel or to in some type of full-time ministry or you've or at least God has snatched you like a brand plucked from the fire and you're going to do the kingdom stuff in the marketplace or wherever he sends you. And so the great question in the body of Christ is, how do I get equipped? Where do I get trained? What are the essentials? How do I walk in the apostolic lifestyle? How do I stay true to the apostolic doctrine? How do I carry my heart in such a way that I have integrity as I walk out the apostolic lifestyle And as I speak forth the apostolic doctrine. And so it's a critical time. Because if your mind expands at a greater rate in knowledge. Then your heart expands. And the walking out of the apostolic lifestyle. You lose discernment. That was my experience in training. As I went to many classes. And I went to both my undergraduate work in theology. And my master's. I had the encounter, or encounter is the wrong word. I had the experience of my knowledge, my mind growing, but my heart shriveling. How many of you know if your mind grows at a greater rate than your heart, you lose discernment? And discernment is the most vital thing that you have. To discern what God is saying to the churches. To discern what is true in the Word. To discern the right issues from the wrong ones. To not get distracted as you run the race. Discernment. And so we're in desperate need of our hearts expanding at an equal, if not a greater rate, than our minds in the place of theological education. Now, am I saying that your mind is not important? No, absolutely your mind is important. You need to contend for the faith once and for all given to the saints. You need to contend for it. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus said very clearly in speaking of the end of the age scenario, take heed that no one deceives you for many false Christs and many false prophets shall arise. Three different times in that passage, he warns us of false Christ. And right now, all over the earth, false Christs have arisen. Even now, they're popping up every day. What's the new one? Is he from Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic? I forget where. Puerto Rico, who has a million followers and he claims he's Jesus. Do you want to know what they said? What is the proof that you are the real Jesus? He said, I don't do any signs and wonders. He said, the false Christ will come that day and they will do false signs and wonders. I don't do any signs and wonders, therefore I'm the Christ. 
Well, have you ever sinned? Well, it doesn't really matter because sin is not a foundational issue, he says. Well, but it is heresy. And we have to have sharp minds to understand what's at stake concerning the apostolic doctrine. We need to show ourselves workmen approved. We need to love Jesus enough to love Him and to understand the truth of everything about Him. But I want to tell you, it's not so I can get my identity in solely understanding the truth and beating up everybody else who hadn't come into line with my specific sub-doctrine. Beloved, if that's all you have is your mind and your Reformed position or your Wesleyan position or your certain Pentecostal tradition, if all you have and you equate that with apostolic doctrine... All you have is a mean spirit to see who's in your camp and who's not. I'm not talking about your tradition. I'm talking about the apostolic doctrine of Christ. Christ. His preexistence. His life. His death. His resurrection. His ascension. His soon return. I'm talking about Him. The fullness of Him. And beloved, I don't just study it so I can count who's in and count who's out. It's the fuel of my worship. Thus, why my mind is expanding in the doctrine of God and of His Son in Christology. As my mind's expanding, my heart is growing. And if my heart grows at a great rate and keeps in step with what's being revealed to my mind, I keep discernment. I don't fall into the ditches. And so I just want to say, there are many subject matter that there's, there's, there's so much I want to talk on this issue of training, equipping, getting ready for full-time ministry, the restoration of, of the apostolic ministry and the prophetic ministry, evangelists and pastors and teachers. I have so much to say, but I want to focus in on a few realities. I want to focus in on the issue of the heart. Do you know in training there's three specific areas you must have? You must have orthodoxy. You must have right thinking. You must have right thoughts. Because why? That's who you're worshiping. When God revealed Himself, He was looking for the response of worship. He didn't just reveal Himself and say, who's in, who's out. He revealed Himself and said, Abraham, I've blown all your paradigms, haven't I? Well, God, who are you? We'll get that straight. No, who really, who you are? Who are you? Oh, I'm, I'm going to send my son soon, and I'm going to clarify everything about me. But until then, you build an altar. You worship in a commensurate way with what I've revealed to you. Thus, even doctrine comes in the midst of a context that God wants worship. He tells you what he's like because he wants the response of your heart. Beloved, even after all the T's have been crossed and all the I's have been dotted, He will still be blowing our minds so that we worship Him. For many, 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 oh, just for infinity, He will sneak up on us in the age to come and a new, a new, a different nuance of His glory will smack us. Bam! We'll go, oh, my God. I thought I knew you. Oh, <laughs> I have a name you don't know yet. But we think God is so boring. And so all we're left with is mean-spirited, 
debating with one another whether they fit in our camp or not. I'm not interested in that today. But apostolic doctrine is very important to me. You can go, you can go take a class on it. I, I teach. That's what I give myself to is the excellencies of Christ, Christology. Go take it. I care very much about it. But what I want to talk to you about is your heart. The apostolic heart. Turn me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is dealing in this context with false apostles, or you might call them those super apostles who display themselves before the congregation and lure the affections of the church away from the simplicity which is in Christ unto themselves. So Paul is dealing with the church in this context, and he's going to make an apologetic Reluctantly, he's going to make an apologetic. He's, he doesn't even want to do it. But he feels like he must set forth what is the true apostolic ministry. And as he does, he gives us this one phrase that has just impacted my heart. He says, for we do not commend ourselves, this is verse 12, again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance but not in heart. Those who boast in appearance but not in heart. If there's ever a line from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is speaking out to the body of Christ right now, it's stop boasting in appearance and begin to boast in heart. Because I want to tell you why. There is a shaking coming. And God, before the, His return, He is going to shake everything that can be shaken. Hebrews chapter 12. So that only what is of the kingdom shall remain. And as He shakes it, everything that is born of flesh and in us will be shaken, all the props knocked out, and only what is of heart in true sincerity and love for Jesus will remain. So the Holy Spirit is speaking out, invest in that which remains. Right now you could build a large program. It's not that hard. You could build a large program if you just made the gospel palatable enough in the name of relevancy, if you just gave them a tidbit, kept them from dealing with the harder issues of how to grow in the Holy Spirit, of what are the gifts of the Spirit that you need to be successful, what, are, what is the, the power of the Spirit that's to be de demonstrated, and what's the fruit of the Spirit that is demanded of anyone who sincerely loves Jesus. If you do away with that, the gifts, fruit, and the wisdom of the Spirit, you can build anything quickly. Just like that man who got a million people to follow him with 30-something different centers, training, training centers in the U.S. for this guy who claims he's Jesus. You can get a lot of people to follow you. But I want to tell you this. There's only one trophy case in heaven with one trophy with one name on it. And it's Jesus. And before that day comes... God is going to shake everything that can be shaken and you will watch mega churches crumble if they aren't built on the rock. If they aren't strong in heart. Jesus said this very clearly. 
He said there are false apostles, there are false Christ, there are false prophets that are on the rise. It will be an hour of peril, great shaking, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation, wars, rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, upheavals, cosmic disturbances. He says this will be the environment before my return that will shake everything that can be shaken so that what is only of me will remain. He will knock all the props out so that only what is of Jesus will remain. This is very key for us because if you're going to get trained and you're going to get equipped, you want to participate with that which remains. Beloved, I had so many of my best friends go through theological training and zip through it to get enough classes in while they never prayed and never thought about how it would impact their family. Their hearts shriveled, their minds expanded, and they compromised on developing their heart in such a way that would carry them when the pressures came. And I want to say this, if you can't develop a prayer life and a life of prayer, fasting, and radical devotion to Jesus in seminary or in Bible college then you can't do it anywhere. Because I want to tell you, when you have the pressure of getting an A or B, that's one thing. When your time issues are, oh, I've got to work and go to class and pass, that's a minimal pressure. Or, I I want to make a really good grade, so therefore I'm going to neglect my private life in God. I want to do well so the board, the ordination board, thinks highly of me. So you give yourself to that. Those are minimal pressures. You want to know true pressures? When your congregation's calling you and the lady's dying of cancer in the hospital ward. And then right down the road, the man is abusing his wife. You've got to intervene. And this parishioner just came to Jesus and they need to be discipled. And this board's mad at you because you cut off funds here and you've got to do that. And you're going, ah! That's pressure. Then you've got three kids at home. That's pressure. And if you can't get equipped in prayer and fasting and a heart of devotion as you're getting equipped, now in the minimal pressures, say la vie, because I doubt you will in the big one. And right now, all across the Western world, hearts are being examined and tested. tested. What will you choose, young man? What will you choose, young woman? Because your choices really will matter. You may be able to parse that Greek verb. But if you have nothing to say to that lady dying of cancer, you aren't worth your weight and salt and you ought to get out. If you don't have enough reservoir to deal with real people and their real issues and have life on the inside of you, What are we doing it for? Who cares how big your church is? I'm only saying this because I know what that feels like. To be the pastor of a church and dying on the inside because you don't have enough time to really know God. And it is misery. And right now the Western world is caught in it and we've got to say enough is enough. We've got to speak the truth in love. 
We've got to go back to the basics. We've got to get there. And I want to talk. There's many things I could speak on, but I want to talk about this issue of the heart. Because I'm concerned, whatever seminary you go to, whatever Bible college, whatever equipping you have, you've got to get these heart values down. Why? Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount, He who hears my words and does them will be like the man who built his house on the rock. He who hears my words and does not do them. And if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, they're all about the issues of the heart. That person is like the man who built his house on the sand. When the storms came, when the eschatological shaking began to disrupt their life, they were found out. They weren't ready. And it was swept away. Beloved, those Jesus' words will not move because you're more gifted. Those words will not move because you were the super student and, the, and the, the golden student of the day for your seminary. Those words will not move. They will stand there like a pillar, like a rock, and weigh you on that day. That's why Paul said, show yourself as a workman approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. These are serious issues. So I want to pray for us. And while I will not address everything, I hope I address some things that may encourage you. We're all in this together. The good news is God's going to turn it all around. Even with us. <laughs> Even us. He's going to do it. That's the good news. And I believe you're in the generation that he is going to begin to bring a change of the understanding and expression of Christianity in one generation across the whole earth. And more and more pastors that I speak to are taking that stand in their heart of they are not going to be the hired Christian for the body. They want God and they'll do whatever it takes. I'm watching it all over. I'm watching it right now. Pastors get great courage because we're in it together. And we need courage to resist the tide of relevancy practical preaching let me just throw this out i know i want to deal with the heart but i want to throw this issue out at you the days of practical preaching are so overrated i had many of my professors tell me oh if you could just teach like jesus taught the parables beloved no one got jesus's parables we don't even get them today just tell a simple story like the parables. Beloved, the parables are most difficult passages in the Gospels to exegete. Do they have one point? Do they have many points? Do you apply them this way? How do you, where do you do what? He didn't give the punchline. Oh my gosh. Rabbis gave the punchline. Jesus just left them there. It's like a man who went out and threw seed. Some among the past, some among the thorny. And some fell on good soil. Then he just walked away. The disciples came up and went, what are you doing? We've got a crowd. Can we keep them? You're blowing your teaching ministry. You never tell them the punchlines. They don't understand anything you're saying. I, I, I'm being serious. Read Matthew 13. They go, Jesus, they don't understand anything you're saying. He goes, I don't want them to. The mysteries of the kingdom have not been given to them. Now, you've got to wrestle with this because this is God's methodology. Because the mysteries of the kingdom haven't been given to them. They've been given to you. What do you mean, us? Yeah, the ones who, who pursued me enough to ask about the things they didn't understand. 
the ones who dug a little deeper and got a gut check in their heart. And though they did not understand God, they went on the quest, the journey to understand the uncomprehensible God. You didn't sign up for theological training to apprehend the infinite God, did you? Do you think you're going to do that? You signed up for a journey to get schooled in the ways of God and the means to discover God and the snippets to pursue Him deeper and dig and dig and ask questions and come back and wrestle. Why did she die? Why was He healed? What happened here? You are thrown into the whirlwind of God and you've got to get equipped in your heart to deal with the whirlwind of when you run into a Jesus whom you don't really understand. And He doesn't change. Are you ready for that? You've got to get heart gripping, heart things in you to prepare you for real ministry of the soberness and the weightiness of feeding a flock. That's weighty. You know what Jesus said to those who he would come back and they were not feeding their flock food in due season? He said, I will come and cut them in two and assign them the portion of the hypocrite. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's, that's terrifying. I'm terrified right now as I say it. We've got to get heart values and heart standards pursuing God from the right context that we might be faithful to the end. So I'm not, I'm not trying to hit everything. There's orthodoxy, right thinking. There's orthopraxis, right practice, right lifestyle, right living, right moral choices. But there is right, what I call orthopathos, which is right emotions, right emotional chemistry. What context of the heart are you doing things out of? And to make sure you don't lose that as you study. Okay. The first one, I want to go through three heart standards. Then in the next session, I'm going to talk a little bit more of what are the specific heart values that the Lord is highlighting to raise up end-time messengers, apostolic witnesses for Jesus and His soon return. The first one I want to talk about is called the divine wound. I'm going to share about the divine wound, the divine possession, and the divine labor. I'll explain those as we go. The first one is the divine wound. I don't know if my southern accent is getting that across. Wound. W-O-U-N-D. Wound, like piercing. The divine piercing. To be wounded. Have you, have you ever been wounded by God? I'm not talking about you had a troubled time. I'm talking about where the love of God so pierces your heart, you're undone. Have you ever tasted of the presence, the grace of God, and the mercy of God to where you realize that no other love has He loved you so? And no other love will ever satisfy you. Have you ever watched a heart where the divine wound comes and in a moment in a worship set, He encounters the heart for real. 
I'm talking about more than the prayer at the altar. I'm talking about when the revelation of God hits your heart and you realize, what? He saved me. He owed me nothing. I deserved hell. But He gave me mercy. Right? The divine wound. I'm going to define it a little more. It is the crumbling of the heart by the piercing arrow of the love of God. God's strategy is to bring voluntary love from a freely given heart of longing. Thus, He reveals Himself to the vessel in such a way that leaves the vessel helpless against the affections of God. How many of you read the stories of the great saints where one day they gave the account where the love of God so apprehended them. Some of them define it as the baptism of the Spirit. Some of them as the baptism of love. Some as if God saturated them all day. But an encounter upon the heart happened to where they could live no longer like they used to. Where the where the best thing seemed like giving everything to God. Have you ever been so wounded by the love of Jesus to where the best and brightest and most wise thing there was was to give Him everything? Your salary. Your future. Your family. You're all. Oh, beloved, when that strikes your heart, it's not about how much will being a minister of the gospel cost you. It'll actually be about Him. You see, there's something way greater than our ministries. It's, it's a real big secret. It's Christ. You want to know the greatest freedoms? Is when you lose everything. Your title, your honor, your fame. And you realize you still got Christ. (laughs) Nothing's changed. No man, no woman controls your destiny. Once the divine wound pierces the heart to where you find out that He is everything. And He's everything in you. Then nothing else matters. Today, I want to say this clearly. If tomorrow I am not president of the school, I just got liberated. My title translates to servanthood. Translates to board meetings and budgets and infrastructures and leadership. But Christ, (laughs) I have Him all the time. Anytime you want to promote me to have more hours in the prayer room, you go ahead. Look, do we understand the divine wound where the love of God pierces the heart? We're trying to be so relevant. I don't want to be relevant. I want the divine wound to strike a generation to where they want the fullness of the Spirit and His gifts, His wisdom, His fruit. The divine wound. We need more Servants of God, dearly beloved ones who have been so wounded, nothing else matters. The divine wound is the initial awakening of the heart left in the pain of incompletion. It is the heart starved for consummation. 
Once awakened by the great lover, the heart has enough life to long for the promise of fullness brought in the first touch. His tenderness wounds us. The heart is defenseless against one thing, undeserved mercy and unreserved kindness. Have you ever felt the kindness of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus so much that the greatest honor you have is to give Him everything? Oh, the divine wound. Jesus overcomes the heart and leaves it rent asunder by loving that which is used to setting up shadows and setting forth illusions in order for others to give their love. All the while, others speak to fortresses in which we set up but never reach the heart. Here's the point. We are so used, we are so fractured and fallen, it's amazing we can get along with anybody for any amount of time. We are so fickle, we're so fractured, and because of that fickleness and fractured nick and our soul being damaged through the fall, we hardly ever show anybody that most vulnerable state. And to be honest, we don't even know what it is. Even if you go on an inner healing journey, you will never discover it. It's like you will move from one degree of misery to another. That place in there, if I just get that place right, that place ain't getting right. You got a new heart. He didn't come to, to just fix that heart. He came to give you a new heart. Christ in you, the hope of glory. But we're so used to setting up all these false illusions so that people will think something or people will love us and we're never at the very core of us, that vulnerable place, really known. You can live in a marriage 40 years and feel like you're never known. I hate to shatter the bubble. Some young people. I've been married now 16 years. I am in love with my wife. I am more in love this year than I was last year. And I'm not saying that. For I, I'm just in love. She's just not dead gorgeous, number one. And she is just godly, number two. Actually, number one is godly, number two. <laughs> All the other reasons. But I want to tell you something. Marriage did not fixed the issue in my heart that once I thought I got married, I would be known. In fact, I felt more misunderstood once I got married. I thought you knew me. I don't think you know me at all. Well, if you knew me, you wouldn't even be saying that. And then you don't. <laughs> we set up fortresses and defense mechanisms, but you know what Christ does? He formed you in your mother's womb. He knows you full well. And when He comes to your heart, He knows it and He loves you right there. And when He loves you right there and you feel it, that you don't have to, you don't have to make Him love you today and make Him love you tomorrow. He loves you because you are His. And He fashioned you. Though you make your bed in hell, He's there. When that Divine love touches your heart. The fortresses collapse. The defense mechanisms go. And suddenly the heart finds itself in a new place. I'll give you everything. Suddenly you're known. Now your marriage can work right. Because whether she knows you right or not, he knows me. I'm known. Touches something deep when the divine wound comes and love touches the heart. We move to a different place. 
God is longing for something from us, our love. John 4.23 tells us that the Father is seeking persons who will worship Him and love Him. Jesus' heart cry in John 17.24-26 is, Father, show them my glory. Let them be with me. Why? I want them to love me like you love me, Father. I want them to love me. I want to so overwhelm their heart. I want them to behold my glory. And when they behold it, suddenly their heart is changed. Suddenly they're known. Suddenly they find out, God, that I'm as kind and beautiful as they hoped and imagined. And then their heart collapses. And then when that time comes, Father, they see me and are with me. Let them love me from that place. Do you know he's after that? He's not so much. He doesn't need your gifting. He doesn't need your talent. There are an awful lot of angels that are gifted and talented. You know what he does need? You know what he desires? Not need. You know what he desires? Your love because only you can give him that. And when a minister of the gospel actually has experienced that and knows it, it is one of the most liberating things. Why? Because that's what every person in your pew wants to experience. And you can't give something you have never tasted of. Oh, it's delightful. Some of you here, you go, I think he's nuts. I'm not. And if you look at anybody in this room that's tasted what I'm talking about, they wouldn't trade it for any other thing in the world. They won't trade it for ambition. They won't trade it for a title. They won't trade it for all the following and all the earth. They have the one gaze that they needed and longed for and that fulfilled them, and that was his. It's a difference. Why? Here's why. You're going to lay, as a minister of the gospel, you're going to lay your head down on your pillow at night. And most nights, there's going to be some people that really like you. And there's going to be some people that really don't. You're going to have a lot of your doctrines, your T's crossed, your I's dotted, and some you're going to be weak on and they're going to hit you. There's going to be so many issues and dynamics that are going on that you cannot perceive. And if you enter into the, into the ministry without having settled your heart, knowing that He's your reward, tonight I'm going to lay my head down on my pillow. And guess what? Whether you liked me or you hated what I just taught on. So what? You know why? I'm His. And I'm growing in grace. I'm sincere. I'm not fooling you. I'm not up here saying one thing and not living another. I'm sincere. And He loves me. And I know it. And I'm free. How can we even take on bringing the gospel to the Muslim world when we can't even press through the opinions of our own congregation. We've got to get this thing right. Beloved, I find in equipping that it's not, it's not really the, the doctrinal issues that trip us up on some levels. For good ministers in the gospel. I mean, we could do a whole session on the validity of the word of God in the inerrancy of scripture. And everyone in here needs to believe 
the Word of God, the inspiration and inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture. We need to believe God's Word. That's a debate raging in the body of Christ. But, beloved, that's a settled issue. I find most evangelicals, we agree on those issues. So what sets apart a minister of the gospel who believes that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus is the God-man, fully divine, fully human, that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, what do we do then? What makes us either a good minister of the gospel or makes us lacking? And I find it usually rests in these heart issues of whether we've truly experienced God in the deep places and have either become a spiritual man or a spiritual woman or not. Or whether you opt for the professional minister with the lofty language. There's no worse feeling than to have lofty. There's no worse thing that you see when a minister has lofty language and you know they have no reality in God. It's like using a wedding dress to take the mud off your hubcaps. It's horrible. But you know what else? There's no worse thing, too, than to be a CEO, entrepreneur, Leading the relevant charge and have the same problem. All forms, but it cuts to the issue of the heart. Do we have the divine wound? Do we know God? Has His love so touched us? Turn me to Matthew 9. Jesus' question about his leadership training. It's a very important verse for educators. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, Jesus does something very interesting here. He's going to set the foundation for his leadership training on a very important principle. John, John's disciples are upset over methodology. Why don't you get your disciples to pray and to fast like we do, and they even join themselves to the Pharisees? Which is an unusual occurrence because John called the Pharisees a brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. But they join sides with the Pharisees for a moment because they're confused over Jesus' methodology. And Jesus gives them the most interesting answer. He says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He sets the context of religious disciplines in the place of mourning. Fasting is equated with mourning. In other words, you fast when you sense or you discern the absence of God's presence on your land. Then you fast in order to get His presence. Remember 2 Corinthians 
What does it say? What does it say? If my people will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways and fast and pray, then I will hear them, forgive them, and heal their land. So when the priest discerned that God's presence was absent in the land and the curses were breaking out, they would fast, they would mourn and say, God, we're sorry, we turn, we rend our hearts. And God would heal their land. Jesus says, the bridegroom is here. I'm here. You fasted. You mourned. My presence is here now. And you're missing it. Can't you remember? John told you how many times that I'm the one. You're the ones who know the most about me. Remember when he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet you refuse to come to me. You know more about me. You entered into religious disciplines, but you don't come to me. Jesus then says, he says, I'm with them. You're not with me where you should be. They're with me. They're doing the right thing. But the day will come when I will leave and then they will fast. Jesus qualifies the religious disciplines as that which keeps his presence near. That's how you keep. You do the religious disciplines to keep his nearness. That spiritual sharpness. But first, he says, before I release them into religious disciplines, I'm going to encounter them with my presence as a bridegroom so that when I leave, they'll be addicted to my presence above everything else. You see, right now, if I just give them religious disciplines without the true encounter on the heart, all they'll be is mean-spirited without any true encounter. And they'll use that to either exalt themselves higher than one another and they'll get into spiritual pride. But I have a strategy. It's this. I am so confident of my beauty, my glory, that I'm going to addict them to me so that when I leave, they'll do anything to get me to come back. Do you know what? That's what happened. Do you know after Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter in Acts 3, 19, 70 to 19, you know what he said? Repent, Jerusalem. Why? Here's why. If you repent, oh, he will, the Father will send him from heaven. If you repent, for he said, he said, you will not see me again, Jerusalem, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Peter began to preach so that Jerusalem would repent. Why? Because Jesus would come. He missed him. What do you think Paul was like after one encounter on that road to Damascus? One encounter. And Paul said, the love of Christ compels me. Is that the love of Christ compels me. If you don't do it, I'm going to take you out, Paul. No, he's he's saying, oh, I saw him. I've been wounded. (laughs) I went to the third heavens. I saw things that are unlawful. I can't even write them down. Oh, I want to so bad. I can't. I'll do anything. You know what the Matthew 24 The Lord said that if the gospel will be preached to all the nations, then the end will come. He'll come back. So here's my plan. Here's my strategy. I'm going to Asia Minor. 
After I get done with Rome, I'm going to Spain. After I get done with Spain, I'm going to the new world. You can't stop me. I'm taking the gospel to every nation. Why? I want him to come back. Have you so encountered Jesus that you go to the Muslim world because you want him to come back? He said in Philippians 1, for me to die is gain. He's ruined me on that road. One glimpse of the glory of Jesus. I'll do anything, but I wish he'd just kill me now and take me home. He keeps raising me from the dead when they stone me. Just let me go. James, his brother, who thought, James thought Jesus was crazy. Remember, James said, well, are you going to go to Jerusalem and show him that you're the Messiah? Ha ha, insane brother. Jesus goes, no, I'm not, because if I went, I'm actually so anointed, they might try to kill me. But you can go because you're not anointed at all. No one will bother with you. We know from the Gospels that his, that his brothers thought he was mad. But Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. And we don't know what Jesus said there, but we know that whatever he encountered there, James became known as Camel Knees, the brother of Jesus who prayed and worshipped to Jesus so much he got huge calluses. When he wrote his letter, the letter of James, he wouldn't even say he's the brother of Jesus. He said, I am the slave of Jesus. Have you ever encountered Jesus where the wound on your heart caused you to be a slave to get him to come back? And until we get that, we don't have anything apostolic. It is a sham and a far cry. A lot of glitter, not much wounding. The good news is it's going to change. Anybody who would like prayer for this issue of wounded, I just want you to pray. You're free to go. We've got to change. I'm going to go into part two in a minute. But if you would like an application for the school, there's a table back there. You can grab it on your way out. I invite you to stay if you want to. But if you would like prayer for this issue, you go, I want the divine wound on my heart. I want to invite you to stand. I want to pray for you in the interim.